From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, recognized each year to raise awareness of the important role colon cancer screening plays in preventing colorectal cancers. On today's program, we'll discuss prevention, screening, and treatment of colorectal cancer with a Mayo Clinic expert. That's correct. 75% of all new colon cancer diagnoses are occurring in persons who do not have a family history or do not have a genetic predisposition to get the disease. Also on the program, peripheral neuropathy, and what is the connection between oral health and a healthy heart? All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And the term colorectal cancer is used to describe cancer of the colon or the rectum or both. Colon cancer is the third most common cancer in the U.S. And it can affect virtually anyone. It's most commonly found in people over the age of 50. But not always. Well, you're right. The number of people diagnosed with colon cancer younger than 50 is on the rise. Joining us to talk about colorectal cancer, risk factors, diagnosis, treatment, and prevention is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist and colon cancer expert, Dr. John Kissel. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, Dr. Kissel, this is still the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States? I'm afraid it is. So um, lung cancer affects both sexes proportionally. Men are more prone to colon or to prostate cancer, obviously, and, and women will have a fair number of deaths attributable to breast cancer. But when you add them all up and average across both sexes, colon cancer is still the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States. And it's increasing? Actually, it's decreasing. Okay. So our um, efforts at prevention and screening have made a significant impact in colorectal cancer Incidents, so the um, number of new cases that are diagnosed and the number of people who die from the disease are fortunately decreasing with the uh, advent of the availability of population level screening for the disease. So it should be a success story, but that success is only half full because there are a substantial number of people who are still not getting screened. Is it true that if you don't smoke, this is the cancer that's most likely to take your life? That is correct. And I suspect maybe uh, your catching up to lung cancer deaths, uh, even though the number of colon cancer deaths is declining, but there are fewer smokers. So lung cancer is less common, dying from lung cancer less common than it used to be. Fortunately, that is true. So uh, the rates of fatality for lung cancer and colon cancer are both decreasing with screening for colon cancer and with fewer people smoking with lung cancer. Now, uh, that doesn't explain all of the story, but those are very high-level trends. Screening starts at age 50, but now we're starting to hear maybe age 45, as we said in, in the intro. Is that just so that you have a head start on catching some of these cancers, or is it because you're finding that people are being diagnosed with it earlier? Uh, so that is a... A complicated uh, question to answer. 
Um, right now, uh, there's very compelling evidence that screening beginning at age 50 will lower the mortality rates from colon cancer. There's some emerging science to suggest that the rates of deaths and new cases among patients under the age of 50 in the United States are increasing, and we don't really know why. Maybe due to trends in diet or other exposures that began with people uh, in the early 70s or late 60s. Uh, the uh, national guidelines that look at the risks and benefits of screening patients um, in, in many circumstances disagree on this topic. So because the rate of advanced polyps in patients age 49 or 45 to 49 is somewhat similar to what we see in 50-plus patients, um, the American Cancer Society uh, made a recommendation uh, a few years ago to consider screening patients beginning at age 45 in order to catch advanced polyps and early-stage cancers before patients develop symptoms from cancer. Um, now, other, was that in everybody or just people with a family history? That is for uh, average risk patients, so persons hmm. without family history. Uh, in patients with family history or for certain high-risk predisposing conditions, such as hereditary colon cancer syndromes or inflammatory bowel diseases, we don't talk so much about screening as we do about surveillance. So those are patients who are at increased risk, uh, and they have customized approaches to, pre- to cancer prevention in each of those specific settings. Can we just, as a little offshoot, so if the American Cancer Society says 45 instead of 50 have insurers, Agreed, 45 instead of 50, or are we still in a little limbo land there? That's a great question. So it depends on who uh, you get your insurance from. Okay. Uh, the American Cancer Society guidelines are binding uh, to patients who receive insurance coverage on a statewide basis. If you receive insurance coverage from your employer, that falls under federal regulations in which the United States Preventative Services Task Force guidelines are the law of the land. Uh, let's talk about uh, risk factors, because I think a lot of people are under the impression that if they don't have a family history, they're unlikely to get colon cancer. But in fact, most cases are so-called sporadic, that don't have a family history, right? That's correct. Seventy-five percent of all new colon cancer diagnoses are occurring in persons who do not have a family history or do not have a genetic predisposition to get the disease. Has that 75% is amazing. Has that changed over the last few decades or has that just uh, been the standard as people have been diagnosed? I think as molecular uh, genetic testing is advancing. We're starting to find out that some of those younger patients that are being diagnosed may carry a hereditary predisposition that they didn't know about. But we don't learn about that from the family history. Well, we only learn about that in those individuals after they've been diagnosed with the disease. So um, this landscape may change over time as a, a broader audience of, uh, of, of, of average Joes out there are getting um, genetic testing done for other reasons. But for right now, really, we want to screen the average risk person who doesn't have that family history because that's where the majority of the disease is still occurring. If you had a close relative, let's say a parent or a sibling, who had had cancer of the colon, when would you start screening and would you get genetic testing? So um, typically the the person who needs a genetic testing is the person who gets diagnosed with the cancer. That's where the genetic testing has the highest yield. Uh, after that, when we're assessing a family member, 
of that individual. We want to know uh, for your first-degree relative, um, A, are they a first-degree relative? So uh, that affected family member needs to be someone close to you, a sibling, a parent, or a child. Um, second, how old were they when that cancer was diagnosed? So most people in the United States with average-risk colon cancers are diagnosed in their mid-60s. When patients are diagnosed at age 60 or younger, we start to worry that that risk uh, uh, is going up in that family and that they may actually carry um, a predisposing mutation. In terms of the um, recommendations for you as the uh, the family member uh, of that person affected with the disease, we typically would start uh, screening our surveillance in this case 10 years before their diagnosis. So let's say you had a brother diagnosed with colon cancer at age 59. We would either start 10 years before that individual or 10 years before you would have been due to start programmatic screening. So your recommendation would be to get a colonoscopy every five years starting at age 40. All right. Now, if you uh, did have genetic testing, let's say you had a sister who had colon cancer at age 59, what can genetic testing actually tell you? Genetic testing on the affected person, the, the individual who has the disease, say the, the 59-year-old sister, if she is carrying a hereditary mutation that increased her likelihood of getting colon cancer, um, having yourself get tested for the same mutation will tell you whether or not you need to follow the average risk guidelines or whether or not you need to follow the surveillance that's tailored to that disease. The most common predisposing mutation to hereditary colon cancer uh, occurs in a variety of genes that fix damage uh, to our DNA, which writes the structural mm-hmm. code of our cellular biology. And those um, repair enzymes, when they are deficient, there will be uh, proofreading mistakes in that DNA that can lead to unregulated cell growth. Uh, that cluster of, of genetic diseases is called Lynch syndrome and is probably responsible for about 5 to 10% of all colon cancer. Individuals with Lynch syndrome have a very high lifetime risk of colon cancer, and so if you carry that mutation, we actually do colonoscopy surveillance on those individuals every year or two. So it's a big difference in what we would recommend for the average risk population, and it's important for people to know. When it comes to the risk factors, how long does it take for a polyp to become a cancerous polyp? I assume it's five years, because for the general population, you go in every five years. Do we have any idea how long a polyp can sit there before it goes bad? That's a great question. Um, We have several lines of evidence to suggest that 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 life cycle of going from normal-appearing healthy colon tissue to a cancer cancer might be closer to 10 years. Individuals that have hereditary predisposition, like Lynch syndrome I mentioned earlier, they're on an accelerated growth pattern. So if they develop a polyp, it can go bad much faster. Uh, There are some old data from from even from Mayo Clinic, from the area of of barium x-rays, to more recent data using CT scans to detect colon cancer, that very small polyps, those five millimeters or smaller, many of those will actually just go away on Hmm. their own, and only really about one in every six of those really diminutive polyps will ever actually progress into a larger polyp that could eventually one day become cancer. So let's talk quickly about symptoms, Uh, and what percentage of patients who are diagnosed with colon cancer actually have symptoms? 
Uh, fortunately, few, probably only about 30 or 40 percent of patients will actually have symptoms that lead to their diagnosis. And really, you don't want to wait until you develop symptoms of the disease in order to get diagnosed. Uh, the symptoms are vague and nonspecific and be, could be confused with a variety of other things, such as uh, fatigue, abdominal pain, difficulty going to the bathroom, blood in the stool, usually any of those, when they're present, they could signify something else. If they're associated with colon cancer, usually they're associated with late-stage colon cancer that may be either difficult to treat or may no longer be curable. So really, that's why we want to encourage screening, which is not identifying the patient who has symptoms, but the the person out there on the street who's feeling fine. That person still has a 1 in 20 lifetime risk of developing colon cancer, and we want to prevent that. All right. Well, March is National Colon Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Our guest and expert on cancer of the colon and rectum, gastroenterologist Dr. John Kissel. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about options for screening, treatment, and prevention. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is an expert on cancer of the colon and the rectum, Dr. Jean Kissel, gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic. The one thing we've learned, and probably the most important thing we've learned, is that you want to catch this disease before you have symptoms. So let's talk about screening options. And by the way, Tracy had it done yesterday. <laughs> so And you survived. I did. It was my yeah. second colonoscopy. And it wasn't that bad, was and it? And as everybody says, it's the prep that'll get you. Uh-huh. But I recommend a diet of three three days ahead of time instead of just waiting until 24 hours ahead of time. And why do you say that? Because then you have less content to move. All right. So uh, colonoscopy is still the gold standard? Uh, colonoscopy is what we call the criterion standard. So it is the test that uh, all other options are measured up against. Uh, it does have some... Uh, some noteworthy limitations, but in general, uh, it's a test that is preferred in most guidelines due to the fact that it can not only identify cancers, but it can identify precancerous polyps and remove them in one step. Uh, the other screening options that are available, uh, flexible sigmoidoscopy, really only looks at the left side of the colon. It so can, that's a short tube. That's a short tube, that's, a shorter yeah. scope. Yeah. It can be combined with some other non-invasive test options for greater sensitivity. The non-invasive options uh, include stool-based tests. People may have heard of the Guaiac Fecal Occult Blood Test, or FOBT. There's newer protein chemistry called the Fecal Immunochemical Test, or FIT test. There's the stool DNA test, which combines hemoglobin, which is a marker of, of blood content, as well as some DNA alterations that we know are found in polyps and cancers. So that's the Cologuard? That's the Cologuard test. Yeah. All right, and, and it's caught on. It has caught on. Uh, so uh, by way of disclosure, uh, my laboratory has a relationship with the, the company that manufactures that test, but I can speak broadly about principles related to screening and test performance. And that's where you just have a bowel movement, put it in a box, send it to Madison, and they test it, and you get the result. So the test uh, is required to be ordered by a physician, and that ensures closed-loop communication of the results. So your doctor gets that result back, 
and then they need to help arrange for the follow-up that would be required if the test was positive. Uh, patients can produce the bowel movement in the privacy and comfort of their own home, and then it is the United States uh, Parcel Service, or UPS, that arranges for the, uh, the brown test. Truck. The brown truck brings <laughs> brings the white box <laughs> with brown contents uh, back to a central clinical laboratory where it's processed in automated fashion. And if the result is positive, patients need to have a diagnostic colonoscopy to follow up that positive result. How accurate is it? So the test is uh, 92% sensitive for curable stage colon cancers and detects large polyps with a sensitivity of 42% in the largest available clinical study. Uh, in other studies in the screen setting, the sensitivities may be slightly higher than that. And the sensitivity for polyps uh, increases with the size of the tumor and also its risk of turning into cancer. All right, and uh, when to stop screening? It's a difficult question to answer because there really are no formal guidelines that address that question. The major societies on screening suggest stopping around age 75, but we generally tell people if you've got really high quality life, if you're a very healthy individual and have at least 10 years more of high quality life expectancy, that you could continue screening or could continue surveillance if you've been found to have polyps in the past. Where it gets very challenging is when patients have other serious competing health problems. So it's not uncommon for us to see a patient who's been sent for a screening or a surveillance exam who has significant heart or lung or kidney disease that may actually uh, shorten their lifespan. Um, I think sometimes patients and primary care doctors feel pressured into following recommendations that we've charted to say patient has to get another colonoscopy. I think that decision should be held between the primary care provider and the patient to really find out what's best for them. I think for patients that are concerned about screening, we hear repeatedly (laughs) that they don't want to get screened because they don't want a bag. And that's a very frightening concept for patients. Again, it's a minority of patients that are diagnosed with colon cancer who will require a permanent stoma and should not be a a deterrent to getting screened in the first place. I have a question about uh, once you've been diagnosed. So you have the colonoscopy. There is a polyp that is cancerous. How do you treat that patient? So if it's a polyp that has cancer in it, sometimes just removing that polyp could completely remove the cancer. We would then, uh, as long as we didn't suspect that the cancer had grown deeper into the bowel wall or had spread, we would do primarily CT scanning or MRI to answer that question. And then we would follow the patient very closely with uh, future colonoscopies uh, or additional tests if they develop symptoms. Finally, it's colorectal cancer awareness month. So how can we prevent colon cancer? Is it even possible? It's absolutely preventable. It is described as the most fatal yet preventable disease that uh, that people, unfortunately, when they succumb to it, it's often uh, needlessly. That's why we should have Awareness Month. Absolutely. So how can we prevent it? So uh, be seen by your provider and get screened. Talk about the available screening options that are available to you either through your um, health care provider or are covered by your insurance and use them in accordance with guidelines. All right. March is colorectal cancer awareness. This month, remember, it can affect anyone, even if you're younger. The most common symptom is no symptom. <laughs> Our thanks to Mayo Clinic colon cancer expert, Dr. John Kissel. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Mayo Clinic has a financial interest in exact sciences. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about peripheral neuropathy, which can cause numbness and pain in the hands and feet, and the connection between oral health and your heart. 
Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. The winter weather means winter skin issues. The weather changes that come with winter can have a negative effect on skin, the largest organ in the body. Colder temperatures and lack of moisture in the air can damage unprotected skin, especially in areas on the face and hands. They're the wounds in an annual battle with dry winter air. Dr. Don Davis, a Mayo Clinic dermatologist, says when the temperature drops, the humidity tends to drop with it, and your skin dehydrates. Dry hands are especially vulnerable to cracks and cuts that can put you at risk for infection. Dr. Davis says winter clothing can help keep moisture in. If that's not enough, you can try one of three categories of moisturizers. Ointments, which contain oil creams, which may have oil and water, and lotions, which are generally water-based. She says if your skin is extremely raw, you may want to start with the ointments. Once skin improves, rubbing a hypoallergenic fragrance-free cream or lotion may provide enough moisture to prevent further problems. And remember, these products only last for a few hours at maximum, so you need to hydrate and moisturize at minimum two or three times a day. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Peripheral neuropathy. Now, if you don't have it, you're lucky and you probably aren't familiar with the term, but unfortunately, it's fairly common and worth knowing something about. Now, your nervous system is divided into two parts. The central nervous system that includes the brain and the spinal cord. Okay. And the peripheral nerves, which come out from the brain and the spinal cord. And we'll be talking about the peripheral nerves. I've already learned something new today. Now, if the peripheral nerves are damaged, and that can happen for multiple reasons, it can result in weakness, numbness, and pain, usually in your hands and feet. And here to tell us more, including the best options for treating peripheral neuropathy, is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Michelle Mauerman. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Thanks, Dr. Mowerman. So tell us about the, the symptoms, and does it depend on which type of nerve is involved? Yeah. So when I evaluate a peripheral neuropathy, one of the first things I talk about is what is involved. And so that is exactly what you're talking about, is which nerves. And so there's different types. We talk about sensory nerves, motor nerves, and autonomic nerves. For the sensory nerves, you can have either negative symptoms, so a lack of feeling, a dead-type numbness, or you can have positive symptoms, so those that are prickling, tingling, sometimes burning, sometimes more painful, like electrical shocks or sharp-type pain. So it's really helpful to kind of clarify both the negative and the positive. So there are three different kinds mm-hmm. of nerves. And yeah. Is it mostly the sensory nerves, the one that provides sensation yeah. uh, to your brain, that are involved? Yeah, so the, usually the sensory nerves are often involved the most or the earliest in a peripheral neuropathy. So they're typically the first ones that patients will have. After that, or in some cases, predominantly, they can have motor involvement. And so motor involvement, typically patients will describe weakness. And so in the most common types of neuropathy, it affects the longest nerves the most severely. And so that would be the nerves to the feet. So people will describe that they're tripping or stumbling over their feet. And maybe it's severe enough that they actually get a foot drop where they can't lift the ankles at all. Other symptoms of weakness could be difficulty getting out of a low chair, going up and down stairs, or trouble opening a bottle, um, things that involve grip. 
the last um, type of fibers that can be involved are the autonomic fibers. And those are what I think of as the automatic functions of the body. So the things that happen that you don't think about. So um, some of the symptoms of those can be what we call postural lightheadedness or feeling like you might faint when you stand up. People can have dry eyes or dry mouth. Um, some of the gastrointestinal symptoms like early satiety, feeling full right after you eat, or if you eat a small amount, you feel bloated or you actually vomit, um, diarrhea, constipation. And then um, people can actually have change in their sweating, so they may notice they don't sweat anymore. Or they can have in men erectile dysfunction. So those are some of the common autonomic symptoms. Wow. A lot. Yeah, that's a lot of things <laughs> yeah. that go wrong. It'd be hard to pin it down. Is it mm-hmm. hard to identify this or to? I, yeah, the history is really key. And so I think the most common things people in the garden variety, most common types of neuropathy describe sensory symptoms in the feet, imbalance, because when you have a lack of feeling, you also don't know where your feet are. And so it's particularly apparent when people close their eyes or they have to walk in a dim area because now you've taken away the visual cue. They have an abnormality in their sensation, so they don't have as much to rely upon. So some of those symptoms are some of the earliest things. So imbalance, loss of sensation, and it should affect often the feet more than other places. Why? What are the causes of this? Yeah. So there's many causes. I would say there's over 200 causes oh of neuropathy. Goodness. So that's, you know, where it can be difficult. But certainly there are things that are more common. So the most common things in, you know, the United States particularly would be diabetes. You know, worldwide we think about things like leprosy. Now, do we know why uh, or how diabetes affects the nerves? Yeah, we do. Um, so prolonged hyperglycemia, we know um, contributes. That's high blood sugar. Mm-hmm, yep, high blood sugar, thanks. Um, contributes to the damage. Um, it's also goes along with the other microvascular complications of diabetes. So the things small like blood vessels. The small blood vessels like the kidney and the eye. So those are often commonly affected together, especially in patients who have type 1 diabetes, which is the kind that you often think about as occurring in young childhood or They have no insulin, can't make right. any insulin. Right, can't make any yeah. insulin. Um, so diabetes, the number one cause in, in yes. the United States? Mm-hmm. That's correct. And what else? Um, the other things we think about are some vitamin deficiencies, so like B12 deficiency. So that's more common um, if you're a vegetarian or if you've had some kind of stomach surgery that maybe you don't absorb the vitamin well. And then some patients, it's an autoimmune problem. Another thing that we commonly think about are monoclonal proteins. So those are abnormal proteins produced by your bone marrow. Everybody makes some, but you shouldn't make too much of one particular type. We call that a clone. And we know that... uh, 10% of patients with neuropathy will be found to have one of these monoclonal gammopathies. And then the problem is then trying to figure out, are they related? But that's common and something we typically screen for. All right. With regard to diagnosis, you mentioned how important the history is. Mm -hmm. Physical exam, I assume, is also important? Yes. So when we're looking at a peripheral neuropathy, you know, the three key parts of the exam really are the motor exam, looking at reflexes looking for weakness and sensation mm-hmm. looking at sensation so you know we're doing a manual exam checking people's strength um, and their arms and legs particularly we're tapping on the reflexes and the arms and legs and typically they're reduced especially you know the ones at the ankles and then sensation because there's different sensory modalities we're doing different things we're checking how well they feel just light touch with like a cotton swab we're testing how well they feel pin with like a sharp pin so that's pain sensation. We're looking at temperature. So we use warm and cold. 
And then we test sometimes what we call vibration and where the joints are in space. So there's different sensory modalities. And then we look at how people walk and how they balance. So let's talk about the treatment options mm-hmm. because it's a fairly common problem, but particularly since there are so many people with diabetes in this country. Right. What can you do for them? So for the most common type of neuropathy, again, the symptoms are in the feet. So there's simple things you can do first. So if people are having a lot of painful symptoms or burning, tingling, you know, it's uncomfortable for their feet to be touched. Um, simple things like soaking the feet in a cool bath of water for 10 minutes can be helpful. Um, you know, simple analgesics like um, acetaminophen or ibuprofen. Um, if it's more severe than that, or you need to take it a step farther. There's topical agents. So those are things that we can actually mix into a cream or a gel. And they have anesthetics in them. Um, as well as um, medication that we can actually give orally as well, but it's just um, some of the anti-epileptic medications or the antidepressants that can be soaked up right into the nerve endings, and so you don't get other systemic side effects, which is nice. And then if people still need more than that or their symptoms are more widespread, then we may use some of the oral medications, things like tricyclic antidepressants, um, some of the anti-epileptic medications, um, some of the antidepressants that work on both what we call serotonin and norepinephrine pathways. What about any therapies or what about acupuncture? Yeah, so I think a lot of my patients who have pain, they um, want to try acupuncture. Some people have a good benefit with it. And so I think it's something that's reasonable to try as an adjunct to their treatment. All right, peripheral neuropathy. It's a painful uh, condition of the nerves and most commonly affecting the feet, but also the hands. Fortunately, multiple treatments available. Dr. Michelle Mauerman, neurologist at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. Still to come, how oral health affects your heart. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Download the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast today for the latest complete versions of interviews you hear on Mayo Clinic Radio. Find Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts on your favorite podcast providers. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Question. Can taking good care of your teeth prevent heart disease? Heart disease? Yeah. That's a good question. It is a good question. It's time for a Mayo Clinic expert's opinion on that. And joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic dentist and prosthodontist, Dr. Thomas Salinas. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Prosthodontist, I'm surprised you did a good job pronouncing that. He's been on that. before. Well, what, is that? <laughs> what does a prosthodontist do? Prosthetics, uh, prosthetic dentistry, as it were, is uh, just one of ten specialties in dentistry that deals with replacing uh, orificial structures. It could be teeth, it could be parts of the jaw, a number of other areas as well. So you do all those implants now. Does anybody get dentures anymore? People do. Uh, Fortunately, in this country, that has gone down uh, as the way patients present with needing dentures, let's say, present edentulous without any teeth. That's becoming less of an incidence than it was maybe just even 10 to 15 years ago. It was an upwards of 20 plus percent. Uh, and in varying areas of the country, you'll find that that's different now. Overall, it's down to about 8 to 10 percent of what it was in comparison. Because of good dental care? Partly. I think people are becoming more innately aware of what that really means. People living longer, keeping their teeth for a longer period of time. So, yes, that's exactly right. All right. So what is a 
dentists, what does your dental health have to do with your heart health? How are the two mixed? It's become really in, uh, more aware now if I, uh, in our medical community. Uh, years ago, uh, the NIH, in conjunction with the dean of University of Southern California, Harold Slavkin, put out a paper that uh, connected the systemic nature of disease with oral health. And this became to light more in the years following that. And I think that some of the piloted studies that have been presented recently look at that. There's not really a, an implied nature of saying causation. In other words, having oral health or oral disease does not, does not really causative in the fact that, for instance, cardiovascular disease is probably one of the more common linked types of systemic diseases now. So that's really where we're at with it. We're looking more of a causation, and that's difficult to prove given the size of many of these studies that have become. So there's no concrete evidence of a relationship, or no concrete evidence that poor oral hygiene uh, causes heart disease? Not at this point. There's so many confounders. Some patients present with multiple diseases. They may have osteoporosis, diabetes, and all of these do have sort of a link to oral health. Because of many of our patients are becoming certainly older now in comparison to 25, 30 years ago, many of them have multi-system type disease, and it's hard to know exactly what causes what. So the causation really is not there, but the association is. And there was another uh, paper, another study that came out that, that showed that if you brushed your teeth three times a day, you were less likely to have heart failure and less likely to get atrial fibrillation, have atrial fibrillation, which is a common type of heart arrhythmia. That's correct. That study was put out recently. It drew a lot of attention, but I think there are some innate flaws with it. Number one, uh, a lot of these patients were self-reporting. And, you know, we all like to think that we have oral hygiene on a regular basis, and many of us do, of course, but uh, it's not as reliable as we think. First of all, it's quite different than we compare some of the other studies that have linked professional periodontal cleaning with cardiovascular disease. Mm. Those have interventions that are very different. Even one that linked diabetes and the effect of professional periodontal therapy with the uh, nature of diabetes. It's as effective as a triple drug regimen, actually. Hmm. So people with diabetes uh, benefit from having periodontal care? They certainly do. Amazing. And it's as effective as what? It's effective as even using a third drug. A uh, third drug to control blood sugar. That's correct. Really? Yes. Wow. I was going to just say it seems to me that if you're taking good care of your dental health, you'd be someone who takes good care of your physical health, but there's more to it than that. Certainly. And this was uh, the basically the cooperation between the American Academy of Periodontology and the European Federation of Periodontology back in 2017 that showed this uh, this finding. I thought I had heard a story a few years ago that if you flossed your teeth, it was good for your heart. Is it the same type of a link? <laughs> yeah, essentially. I mean, I think uh, we have to look at periodontal disease and how this is. It's, it's sort of a growth of bacteria within the mouth. It's a film on teeth. Certain areas between teeth 
can actually be depleted of oxygen. So it's not just the fact of removing bacteria through the physical act of flossing, but it's disturbing that anaerobic or without oxygen environment that tends to promote periodontal disease. That's one of the real reasons to, to floss. So if you have bacteria in your mouth because you haven't taken, obviously there are a lot of bacteria anyway, but if you lessen the number of bacteria in your mouth by brushing, flossing, etc., then you reduce the number of bacteria in your bloodstream, you reduce the inflammation in your bloodstream, which reduces your risk for heart disease, presumably. Is that the theory? That is the theory. And uh, there's there's lots of levels to that. Uh, certainly, you, you actually increase the bacterial count in your bloodstream just by the nature of brushing and flossing your teeth as well. However, some of the pathogens we find that are commonly found in patients that have extensive periodontal disease. Pathogens meaning disease-causing bacteria. Correct. Mm -hmm. And some of these bacteria also are found in cholesterol-based plaques within the artery itself have been found to be sort of a confounder in this type of, of disease process. So it's not really clear if, if it's a chicken or an egg thing. Uh, what comes first? Is it a common finding in both disease states? Uh, and there are other diseases that may have this, this uh, effect as well by uh, just by nature of, of these types of bacteria. Another story I saw, and it said that tooth loss patterns are connected to coronary artery disease. Can you explain that? Yeah, this is, this is somewhat linked. Uh, so even though there's an association here, it doesn't seem to be causal. Again, it's, there's an association. It's a, it doesn't mean that there's a, a, a cause-effect type relationship with this. But there is an association. So patients that have advanced periodontal disease often have a loss of uh, tooth loss pattern that will predict in some way coronary artery disease. It's not well understood. Uh, some of this is based on inflammation and the fact that some of the inflammatory markers seen with periodontal disease also are found with other disease states like diabetes. One happens to be coronary artery disease. Some of these pathogens also, just by nature of their involvement in the bloodstream, will actually elevate cholesterol. And uh, wow. so that's found as well. <laughs> so when you talk about a tooth loss pattern, what does that mean? I mean, what particular pattern would suggest you're more likely to get coronary artery disease? Yeah, certainly having a certain number of teeth that are lost within a given period of time. For instance, okay. the most common missing tooth in the adult population in the United States is the lower first molar. Why is that? Well, it's been there since you've been six years old. However, it's been subject to attack longer than any of the other teeth have been with regard to bacterial plaque, poor oral hygiene, etc. But the, the idea of seeing multi-rooted teeth being lost is somewhat of a sign of an advanced tooth loss pattern. All right, have you ever asked a dentist, okay, what do I really need to do to take good care of my teeth and gums? Standard suggestion, uh, this comes also from the NIH, it's looking at uh, seeing a, a professional every year, at least, for an examination, a thorough examination. That includes visual examination, prophylaxis cleaning, deep cleaning if it's appropriate, periodontal therapy if it's indicated. Uh, also looking at uh, 
uh, x-rays as uh, a screening mechanism to detect caries and advanced bone loss patterns in uh, in many of the back caries teeth. or cavities so uh, once a year for x-rays once a year for x-rays in some patients we we might accelerate that based on the incidence of caries we're seeing lots of changes in caries these days I mean some of us know all the vaping that's gone on now and the controversies around that many of these vaping products hold sweeteners in them and actually increase the incidence of caries as well we're looking into that in our own patient population. Flossing? Flossing is, uh, Once is, a day enough? is essential. Once a day is sufficient. It, it, again, disturbs that environment that bacteria tend to reproduce in. All right, and brush two to three times a day? Brushing <laughs> at least two times a day, uh, three if it's possible, is suggested to reduce the bacterial count. As far right. as did you bring your toothbrush? <laughs> you know what? I've got some of those little ones that you can carry with you in your purse. Are those those wisps? Are those good enough? Oh, those are great! I'm excited. Uh, those are. <laughs> I can hand are, them out when we're done here. Those are really great. I, I think it you know it gets people into the cognizant habit yep. of of regular oral care each day. Excellent. So, yeah, those are great. All right. Well, taking good care of your teeth and gums is a good idea. We know that gum disease is associated with an increased risk of heart disease. Maybe not cause and effect, but there is a relation. There. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic Dentist and Prosthodontist, Dr. Thomas Salinas. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.